Hello everybody, welcome back to another season of the Inside Social Work podcast. This is the first episode for the year. I've been really grateful to all the listeners so far. We've had over 20,000 downloads of the podcast, which is incredible. Um, people are joining the Facebook group and being a part of the Inside Social Work community and sending me ideas of things they want to hear in upcoming episodes and so big shout out to all those social workers out there and the listeners to the podcast. I wanted to start the podcast today by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land. Uh, the podcast is being recorded um, in the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. I had a lot of fun interviewing today's podcast episode with Associate Professor Dr. Craig Hazard. And we talked about mindfulness and I thought this was a really perfect episode to start the season uh, thinking about how we can be more mindful day to day and how we can support the mindfulness um, being uh, our clients and service users being more mindful uh, in our interactions with them and how that that yeah how that can really support um, compassion uh Craig also shares some uh, feedback, I guess, from research, looking at how mindfulness can help with things like anxiety, chronic pain and depression. And he shares some uh, resources at the end of uh, areas that you can uh, you can explore your own mindfulness practice, some courses and training that you can do, and a new book that he's releasing. Um, I think it's a second edition to an existing book. Uh, and I'll just check what it's called. It's Mindfulness for Life and his new 2021 edition will be released, uh, I think, in around June. So if you're listening to this podcast and it's before the 21st of March 2021, uh, you can also hop onto the uh, Future Learn website and there'll be a link in the podcast notes uh, and join the current intake of uh, mindfulness training it's run a few times a year so don't don't fret if you feel like you've missed out i really hope you enjoy my interview with uh, craig uh, so welcome to the podcast craig uh, do you want to give the listeners a bit of a background into who you are and what you're doing yes marie um it's good to be with you and uh, and all your listeners um I'm medically trained, uh, but I had a long personal and professional interest in, in mindfulness. And so, and I thought that this is a really useful skill for doctors on mental health and wellbeing, but also to help their patients. And so I got involved with medical education uh, back in the late 80s at Monash University. And, um, and so I've been working at Monash ever since then. And, uh, and now, not just in the medical course, but in a whole lot of other um, health disciplines. Uh, so pretty much all of the allied health um, programs also have mindfulness as a part of the curriculum now, not as an elective as part of the curriculum. So uh, so that's a, a big uh, passion in my working life. That's what I spend a lot of my time doing. Yeah, wonderful. Can you tell the listeners um, a bit about what is mindfulness and how that might be different to the way it's kind of thrown around in the vernacular at the moment? Well, many people have a kind of an instant notion of mindfulness being like a meditation practice, and it is, but it's not just meditation, it's also a way of living. So, um, so mindfulness, we're really cultivating an ability to be present, to be attentive, but the attitude with which we're being present, 
and attentive. So a kind of an openness, a curiosity, a, a gentleness of attitude, a sort of self-compassion. So we're training attention and attitude with mindfulness practice, but not just when we're sitting in a chair meditating for five or 10 minutes, but to take that out into the rest of our day when the rubber is hitting the road, when um, everything's hitting the fan. Um, so to actually be able to bring that mindful attentiveness and attitude even into the more challenging moments of day-to-day -day life and work. Mm, wow. You've mentioned, uh, I mean, in your bios and some of the work you've done is around, is in research and publishing. How does that work in a research capacity? Like how do we research or measure being mindful and, and show the impact of that? Well, it depends on, there are lots of questionnaires that kind of try and measure a person's tray mindfulness. That means how mindful they tend to be in day-to-day -day life. So you ask people, you know, do you tend to be present? Do you, do you tend to be open to, um, you know, events as they unfold? And, um, and do you tend to adopt an accepting attitude to things, um, even the things that find uncomfortable? So you can, you can try and get an assessment of that. Um, so you can measure if a person does mindfulness training, do they become more mindful over time? Um, there's all sorts of other things you can do uh, as well. So researching what happens in the brain when a person's mindful or what happens to their mental health if they learn mindfulness. So probably the area of research that created most interest initially was when um, these kinds of practices were, were um, brought to bear for people that had recurrent depression. And they found if people learn mindfulness, they were much, much less likely to relapse into depression in the future compared to if they um, didn't have mindfulness training or just had the usual medical care by itself, that is antidepressants. And so, so when those kinds of studies came out, people got really interested. And um, so there's many, many different kinds of research that are, uh, that are done on mindfulness now. Yeah. Are all mindfulness practices created equal? Like is there variability in their effectiveness for things, like you said, to improve relapse for depression and um other mental health issues? Well, that I suppose the cornerstone, uh, cornerstone mindfulness meditation practices, <clears throat> awareness of the body, uh, of the breathing, etc., are reasonably similar. How long a person practices for, so if a person practices for longer, they'll probably become more mindful. Like if you do more exercise, you'll get fitter. <laughs> you do a little bit, you'll get fitter, but if you do more, you'll get more fit. Um, but it's, it's also how do you help a person to be mindful in their day-to-day -day life as well. And so for clinical situations like major recurrent depression or severe chronic pain or other significant, you know, coping with life-threatening illness like cancer and so on, the programs tend to be more intensive. So and probably the gold standard programs would be MBCT or mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction. But not everybody's up for um, an eight-week, uh, two-and-a-half-hour-a-week program. <laughs> um, and indeed, um, people can get quite a lot of benefit from briefer mindfulness interventions and brief mindfulness practices. Mm -hmm. So there are many different formulations, and, and we don't know you know, um, there's more research to do to tell which which one's the best. But, but um, you know, the, any amount of a practice that a person does will be a step in the right direction, though. 
Yeah, I've heard a lot about the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. I've participated in a, a workplace, actually had that as one of their activities to reduce staff burnout. Mm. Um, so I offered that to staff for six weeks, which was incredible. Mm. You mentioned um, chronic pain or, or sort of pain management. How does mindfulness help with pain management? Because <laughs> you would sort of think that if you're practising being present, then the last thing you want to do is to be present when you've got pain. Yes, yes, that <laughs> would very, be, yeah, the assumption. <laughs> yeah. So now if, you, if you're starting to practice mindfulness, and let's say if a person's got chronic pain and the medical treatments are not taking it away and a person's trying to deal with it, um, then when a person starts to practice mindfulness, like a half-hour practice of mindfulness meditation, for example, they become very aware of what's going on in their body. So the sensations become more obvious to them. But also if a person really pays attention, they'll notice that there's another layer of experience as well. And that is that there's a sensation experienced, but there's a mental and emotional attitude to that sensation of hating it, of criticizing it, of wanting it not to be there. And now if a person gets curious in a mindful way, then it's interesting to notice that that attitude actually amplifies the intrusiveness of that pain. It, it amplifies the suffering associated with that sensation. So, and it fixates the attention on the very thing the person's trying to get rid of. <laughs> so when a person's learning mindfulness with severe chronic pain, and, and it takes patience and quite a lot of courage to do that, but if they're well guided by an experienced teacher in mindfulness, then the person will start to notice, yes, there's that sensation there but adopts a more and more neutral, non-reactive attitude to it. So the person is able to notice the sensation, but as they notice it in a more accepting, open kind of way, they also notice that they don't have to have their attention monopolized by that sensation. They can bring the attention back to the breath. Or in their day-to-day -day life, they can bring their attention back to who they're with or what they're doing, the car they're driving, you know, the food that they're eating. So the, in a sense, the, the sensation starts to recede into the background, not because the person's trying to block it out, but just because the person's attention's more engaged with other things. And the reduced emotional reactivity to it um, means that it doesn't, the person doesn't become hypervigilant for it and activate the stress centers when that um, sensation's there. So paradoxically, over time, if a person's consistent, then... Um, the amount of suffering associated with the pain diminishes um, significantly. It literally, and it works different to a placebo. When studies have looked at brain scans of people who learn mindfulness for pain compared to taking a placebo, they're very different pathways and the mindfulness is much more effective. Wow. So if you want to sort of do a little practical experiment now, um, do you want to do a little experiment? Yeah, I was actually going to ask for something similar, so go for it, yeah. Okay, well, um, for yourself and for your listeners as well, just to remain quiet, and I'd like you to notice your environment and if there is any persistent kind of sound in your environment. So it might be road noise or it might be a refrigerator humming away or might be... Um, you know, the air conditioning going or something else, but just notice some reasonably persistent noise, even if it's quiet um, in the background. Mm. 
Now what I'd like you to do is to block out that sound in the background so that you can't hear it. Make that sound completely go away so that you don't even notice it in the slightest. If you can still hear that sound in the background, I'd like you to try even harder to block it out, like completely make it go away. Good. Okay. What did you notice, Marie? It did got louder. <laughs> it got louder. So the harder you try to block that sound out, the louder it got. It, it's funny you chose that as an example because um, I've been doing a weekly meditation group as a participant and we had um, last week, they were renovating the building next door and the instructor was like really cautious not to say just ignore the sounds because then that's all you could focus on. And we discussed it after about that almost exact example that if she said don't focus on the noise, we were going to focus on it. So instead it was focusing on body sensations and bringing our awareness back to the breath and grounding and those noises weren't as intrusive. Yeah, that's right. And, and so it's a, it's a quite an interesting thing. So rather than trying to block out the very thing the person's trying to block out, it's just like, if it's there, it's there. You see, because that sound wouldn't have been intrusive before. No, I could barely hear it until you said, think about the sound. <laughs> that's right. And so, and of course, as soon as we try to block something out, we become hypervigilant for the very thing we're trying to block out. It's not just with suffering on a physical level like pain, but also on a mental and emotional level, anxiety yeah. or depression. So a person's trying to block out the sounds and the feeling, uh, sorry, the thoughts and the feelings that they're hating themselves for having. Yeah. And of course, the person, they become more and more intrusive. They dominate the attention. And that's not mindfulness. And many people, when they learn mindfulness, um, they say, oh, I'm no good at it, or I can't do it, or, you know, doesn't work for me, because they've got an assumption that it's about trying to block stuff out. And it's not. If it's there, it's there. But we can learn to be gentle with it. And we can learn to be interested in it or not interested in it. Yeah. And if you get more interested in something else, like your life, then the other thing recedes into the background and the brain changes how it sort of calibrates things um, significantly. So it's very interesting. And the same with tinnitus. A lot of people have tinnitus and they're trying to block it out. Is it there? Is it there? I can still hear it. And of course, the only thing that works for tinnitus are really the principles of mindfulness. That is, it's there. Okay. Just give your attention to something else. Just be interested in something else. Yeah. It's not about trying to block it out. Yeah. So there's a big overlap um, between sort of mindfulness and, I mean, we had um, a, um, Louise Hayes talk about acceptance and commitment therapy mm -hmm. and how, you know, being mindful and creating that curiosity in a way challenges the thoughts we have about our thoughts mm, by true. not um, being hooked into them. Is there a, have you, do you know much about the, those two kind of modalities, how they sit together? Oh, very, very complementary. In ACT, there's a, a little bit less emphasis on the, the sitting meditation practice, um, but the, the principles of ACT are very, very much um, based on mindfulness principles, as with other forms of therapy that have been found to be very useful in other settings like dialectic behaviour therapy, for example. Yeah. So these kinds of principles, and these are not new ideas, the principles and practices that we associate with mindfulness these days go back thousands of years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a few pretty cluey people <laughs> quite some time ago noticed the very things that we're noticing now and 
have uh, recommended these kinds of practices um, for a long, long time. Mm. So for people listening who might want to incorporate um, some more mindfulness activities in their work, whether they work in residential care or case management, how can they start? Because I think some people get discouraged that it's a really big chunk of work that they have to do. How Mm. can they, is there any training they can do or just sort of things they can learn on their own where they can introduce some of this language and some of these approaches with their, their clients and service users? Yeah, well, I'll just say at the outset that if a person's going to use mindfulness, you know, like MBCT or just mindfulness approaches for people who've got major recurrent depression or other significant mental health or physical health problems, then you really want to be very experienced with mindfulness. You don't want to do a one-hour workshop and say, all right, I'm going to start helping people with depression with mindfulness because if we don't really understand it well, we might teach what we think is mindfulness, but it could be the opposite of that. Yeah. So, so um, you'd need to get some good amount of training to be using it for serious clinical problems. But having said that, there are lots and lots of ways that a person, uh, that a therapist, that a health professional can bring mindfulness into their work. The first way is to practice it in your own life, practice being mindful so that we can (laughs) cope with our own workload and stress and everything else. But the second thing is to bring it into the consulting room. So when, you know, when a client's speaking, to really be giving you full and undivided attention, to really be present with them. It was interesting, I um, I was running a program for psychologists uh, a while back and um, we had a half-day workshop and then a few weeks later we had a follow-up workshop and, and this was just really to help the psychologists be more mindful in their own life. And one of the um, psychologists, uh, when we're having the, the debrief a few weeks later, said, um, you know, I've noticed some really interesting things I'd never noticed before. And she said, one of the things I've noticed is that I hardly ever listen to the answers to the questions I ask, which <laughs> he was quite surprised about that. But she noticed what happened was she'd ask a question and then while the client was responding to the question, she was actually mentally rehearsing the next two or three questions she was going to be asking. She was having a little conversation with herself. She wasn't actually listening to the words that the person was saying. Mm. She was kind of roughly aware that they were talking, but she realised that she was actually having a dialogue with herself. And and, And she wondered, you know, that was probably a big part of why at the end of the day, she was so mentally fatigued and, and, um, and how it was really hard work. And she said, now I'm practicing mindfulness. So when I ask a question, I just mentally shut up and I just listen to what the client says. And she said, it's interesting because I don't have to be two or three questions ahead. I just have to be in step with the client because the next question asks itself directly from what they've just said. And she said it's a lot more mentally restful and we actually get to the point quicker now with much less effort. So that's perhaps an example of a health professional being mindful with somebody by really attending, really being present. And that includes being accepting, being open, being curious as things unfold. For example, we might notice that um, we're so keen to sort out somebody's problems and if it's not happening we're getting stressed ourselves whereas if we can just be accepting that okay you know then it's going to go through some ups and downs the process the therapeutic process we won't be able to help 
everybody or not everybody as much as we'd like to. So that kind of accepting attitude for ourselves as a practitioner can help us in not getting so stressed or taking on a lot of the vicarious stress of other people. To cultivate the kind of compassion and presence to people um, is a big part of being mindful. So, so that, that's the next step is to bring it into the consulting room to be a mindful practitioner. And then of course, if we want to take it the next step, <clears throat> then um, we can start to just in a very, I don't know, not, not like trying to run full on MBCT training or anything, but when we might be so with a client and they're going back and ruminating constantly over things in the past, then we can, we can get curious and mindful and we can just ask some questions. <clears throat> so this habit of ruminating about the past, is that something that you're aware that you're doing or do you just sort of do it unconsciously and habitually? Oh, yeah, pretty much just do it unconsciously all the time. And what effect does it have when you do that? Oh, well, it makes me feel down and terrible about my life as it is now, etc. Okay, so, and when you notice those kinds of thoughts, what attitude do you have to, oh, I hate myself for thinking that I just get irritated with myself. Okay, so would you like to develop some ways of helping you to notice when you're switching into that mode of mind? Would you like to develop some ways of helping you to come back to the present moment and not to be so judgmental and critical of yourself? And, uh, you know, would that be of use to you? So you can ask questions in such a way that a person might see that, oh, maybe cultivating some of these kinds of practices could be useful. Mm. And so, so in all sorts of ways, well, you know, being more present and so on, you can, you can actually start to offer that to somebody to help them with their, their life, to help them to be more mindful. If it's a major therapeutic issue, then unless you've got really good training, probably good to refer to a psychologist mm. or other mental health professional who does have that training. Yeah. Is it okay for people to, I mean, I, I've realised in my own practice, I introduce more of it as I become a more skilled practitioner myself. So it might start off with something as simple as, you know, I tend to use um, less so in COVID, but, you know, clients will have like a cup of tea or hot chocolate and it might just be just take a moment see if you can smell it can you hear any noises what are five things you can hear and we just do a little bit of grounding um and i build up their i guess tolerance for lack of a better word or a, a familiarity with being mindful through those small things you know mm. use sometimes i use like bubble mixture to get them to learn to how to blow their breath with bubbles until that becomes embodied is that sort of stuff and a good way to start introducing it into your work oh look i think there's an infinite number of very creative ways to bring mindfulness into the work and you see if we start to practice mindfulness in our own lives so when i was a, a junior doctor for example i didn't have any training in this at the time but um you know when uh, um you know i had very very long shifts in hospital I realized that when you're going all day and all night and all day and all night and into the next day, you know, um, you need to conserve every molecule of energy. So just dealing with one complex clinical situation and then you got a call to a ward to deal with another one and it's 3 a.m. and you're going through your second night without sleep and you haven't had a break in about, you know, 50 hours by now. And, um, and just realizing that... Um, well, when walking from one ward to another, just walk. Just feel the body moving, the rhythm of the body. Just notice anybody as you pass down the corridor, just 
notice them and acknowledge them, just, just to feel the rhythm of the body. And just walking mindfully was enough to give me some mental rest for that two minutes rather than fill that two minutes with, oh, I've got so much to do and why am I even doing this career and <laughs> when's it going to be over? So, <laughs> so the day was full of lots of moments of mental rest. And so when between seeing one client and another, for example, just have a few mindful moments so that when the new client steps into the room, we're more mindful with them, that we can just, when we're eating our lunch, just eat the lunch, <laughs> just taste the food. So when we do that, we can then understand it from the inside out and help our clients to actually bring this into their lives in all sorts of ways, mm. you know, to really come to our senses because there's, the body's always in the present moment. That's one of the good things about the body. Like you never get to work in the morning. Oh, I haven't got my body with me. I'm going to have to go home and get it. You know, it's like the body is always here now, but the mind is often not. So to help the mind to be in the here and the now, we give, um, you know, the body will bring the mind back into the here and the now using any of the senses, like the sense of touch, the smell, the taste, you know, the, any sense, the hearing will bring the attention back to the present moment. So there are lots of creative ways of doing that, kinds of exercises you were mentioning before, but it's literally what's meant by the term come to your senses. Mm. You mentioned, so we, we've kind of talked about the benefit for clients and reoccurring um, sort of ruminating thoughts and chronic pain. You touched a little bit about vicarious trauma. Mm -hmm. How can um, listeners incorporate mindfulness in, in, to kind of reduce burnout and vicarious trauma like is there are there specific types of exercises they can do like how can they cultivate a mindfulness practice to support their well-being in a workspace yes it's an important question if we're around people every day who are experiencing some pretty challenging events in their lives when when we experience a kind of empathy and empathy is a wonderful thing but when we're experiencing a kind of empathy where we are distressed by somebody else's distress. Then their, their stress centers their brain are firing off, but so are ours. And what happens is that the areas of the brain associated with compassion um, pretty much get offline. So the stress is overwhelming the compassion areas. And very often when we try to be helpful to somebody, when we're caught up in their distress, then... Um, the attempt to be helpful for them is generally not so much about what they need. It's more about what can I do quickly to put myself out of my distress? And so we actually become less helpful in a way. Now, this might sound, again, paradoxical, but when somebody's in distress, if we're practicing mindfulness, the first thing is just to be accepting. There's distress in the room. It's okay. And mind you, if day by day we can learn to be more comfortable in the presence of our own distress, as we were talking about it before, then it makes it easier to be more comfortable in the presence of other people's distress. And it's not about trying to wall ourselves off from it, cut off and pretend it's not there. It's not about, you know, diving into the quicksand with somebody and getting caught up in the same problems. It's the ability to just be present, to be open, to be accepting, and if we can just cultivate that sort of sense of compassion, compassion for ourselves, of course, but compassion for that person. And there's not a quick, you know, I've got to fix the person or fix the situation. It's just an ability to be with it. 
then if there's something that might be helpful, it'll arise from a different place. The stress areas, the brain aren't overwhelming areas, the brain that are trying to make decisions and the compassion areas, the brain aren't swamped by. So, and compassion is not associated with this sort of vicarious stress or vicarious trauma. Compassion, when we experience that, uh, is associated with activation, all sorts of areas of the brain associated with positive emotions. So there's a kind of an openness, there's a kind of acceptance, there's a kind of compassion that we can cultivate through mindfulness that can also help not only the client, but help ourselves as well. Because if we're not dealing well with that vicarious stress, one or two things tend to happen over time is we either wall ourselves off and become cynical and cold and removed, um, or we get overwhelmed by it and pretty soon find we can't go on with the job. I was running some programs once for people who are working in child protection. They said the turnover in these jobs is about somewhere around six to nine months. Most people are pretty much burned out by that stage. And, um, and really when we're moving into really complex and challenging areas, we, we've got to look after the health professionals as well as the patients. And we've got to learn, I think, these skills uh, if we don't, we're going to be in trouble sooner or later. Yeah, that's um, that's a really nice point for practitioners to really take on. Mm. That self-compassion thing, I think, is a bit of a challenge for some. So mm. be curious to um, to see what comes up as people listen to this, mm. what thoughts they have to that. Mm. Any um, So you've written, I'm just looking at the list of, you've got a written a huge um, collection of books and, and kind of co-founded the couple of programs are there any sort of standout things for listeners you think would be useful um who are working in sort of the mental health or well-being kind of social mm. work space yeah um well mindfulness for life and there's a new edition of that coming out um uh that's that's a book i wrote uh, with exile publishing and um so if you want an all-round book looking at mindfulness and its various uses and how to apply it personally and professionally that would be a pretty good um, uh, resource, but there's also a couple of um, um, free online mindfulness courses we developed at Monash University, but they're on the Future Learn platform. The first course is Mindfulness for Wellbeing and Peak Performance, and it goes live three times a year, and it's totally free, no cost to do it, and it's a, a four-week course that people will do at their leisure, and then there's a follow-up course for people that like to do that as well called Maintaining a Mindful Life. And again, four weeks, do it at your own pace over that period of time, and it goes live a few times a year as well. So that's on the Future Learn platform. Um, and then the best apps. Um, so, and according to an independent review, um, Headspace, the UK Headspace, great for mental health resources and mindfulness. Um, but uh, a free app um, developed in Australia was um, also ranked right at the top. Um, called Smiling Mind. And I'm an ambassador for Smiling Mind, so I don't mind promoting them. Um, but uh, that's a free app. So it's a philanthropic group that put that together. And they've got a wealth of fantastic resources that are age specific as well. So everything from young children through to, you know, um, adults and, and uh, everything in between. So there's some very good resources if people want to learn more about mindfulness. Mm. 
And one thing I wanted to to end with is you mentioned, you know, talked about you use the analogy of well, if you exercise, you exercise more, you get fitter. Is how do people incorporate that into their practice? Like I think some people think I might do a half hour class once a week. Is that enough? Is it better to do five minutes a day? Like what are some of the the ways to um, to make it a part of your day to day routine so you get the most benefit? From from a, the meditation practice, sometimes called the formal practice of mindfulness, and nobody really knows uh, yet if you do a half hour practice or six five minute practices. You know, do you get more or less benefit? I think the regularity is pretty good. And mind you, only people who are really significantly distressed or highly motivated are ready to do a thirty or a forty minute practice of meditation. But for the busy professional, starting off with, say, five minutes twice a day. So before you get into your working day, five minutes of mindfulness practice. And that helps you to move into the day mindfully. And then at the end of your working day, between that and whatever you're going to do in the evening, um, for example, five minutes of mindfulness as well. So you put a little bit of space between your work and the rest of your life. You could say that that's two full stops in your day, but I'd say lots of little commas as well. <laughs> so that is between one client and another, you might just give yourself half a minute or a minute, a mini meditation practice. And so that's the formal practice. And, and the aim of that is to help us to be more mindful while we're going about our life. You know, present in a complex clinical situation, but also present when we're just having our lunch or walking through the park. Or at the end of a really full-on day, you give that pillow your full and undivided attention <laughs> and um, just to be present then as well. And so whether the, the days, whether the moment is mundane or profoundly important, the, from a mindfulness perspective, it all matters uh, just as much. Wonderful. Thank you. And I'll put some links to the, to the book and the Future Learn um, stuff on the website. I think I'm... I'm I'm a few, I think I'm a couple of weeks into one of the programs. So it might have to be a little while before people join in um, again, if they run them as sort of structured courses, but thanks so much for your time. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Marie. It's been useful for your listeners. I'm sure it will be. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Craig. Uh, he's such a gem and really embodies a lot of the mindfulness practices in his interactions with me it was such a beautiful episode to be a part of uh, so just a reminder so craig's book will be released uh, in around june of 2021 and you can get that wherever it is you get your book so uh, look out for mindfulness for life and uh, the future learn course so you can uh, hop onto futurelearn.com and look for that mindfulness course there'll also be a link in the show notes it's so great to be back in the podcasting chair. I did feel a little rusty uh, starting off, but we're getting back into the swing of things. And we've got some really great uh, guests and speakers in the upcoming episodes. So please get in touch if you've got something you'd like to share. If you want to inquire about being on the podcast, you can reach out to me. So my email address is marie at insidesocialwork.com. You can reach out to me through the Facebook group, uh, through LinkedIn. Uh, you can even join the Inside Social Work Facebook group and be a part of that community. And I look forward to, um, yeah, to more episodes coming up and hearing about people's stories and what they're doing. Have a great day. Take care. Bye.